Hallelujah. Father, we thank you for the glorious privilege of being included in your sovereign plan as your blood-bought and redeemed people to show forth the praises of your name unto this earth, regardless of where you've placed us, an out-of-the-way corner in central Minnesota, or a missionary call to the far reaches of the yet unreached world. This is all according to your purpose and your glory that you have ordained to shed abroad across this earth as the waters cover the sea. Until such time as the promises of Scripture come true in history that all the peoples praise you. We have read, Lord, time and again in your Scripture that you have intentions to ransom for yourself an adopted people to make them your own, sons and daughters of the Almighty, brothers of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And we thank you, Lord, that your intentions in doing this are absolutely secure in your sovereign power to ransom the lost, to resurrect the dead, to call the lost unto salvation. We thank you, Lord, that we have a handful here today who are evidence to this very truth. You have brought us out of darkness into your marvelous light. As we rejoice in you and as we feast our minds upon your glorious works and deeds, I pray that you would encourage and strengthen our faith, equip and sharpen our understanding, Lord, so that we might be effective in shining for your name. As we turn our hearts and our attention to your scripture, open our ears, our spiritual ears to hear your words, our spiritual eyes to see the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ contained in all of scripture, that we might take great joy in yourself revealed through the pages of your holy word, that we might better glorify your holy name, and that the lost might be drawn unto salvation through the proclamation of the same. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. What a great blessing and privilege we have today to open up the Scriptures together and to behold God's Holy Word. Join me this morning in turning in your Scriptures, would you, to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis 4 verses 1 through 12 will be our primary text today as we continue in our Genesis series. This is the story, the account of Cain and Abel, specifically Cain and his great sin and the murder, fratricide that is killing of his brother, sibling killing, of Abel and the fallout and the evidence of the great uh, depravity of man's heart as a consequence of sin entering into creation. The title of this morning's message comes from Proverbs 17, 17, wherein the scriptures say that a friend loveth at all times, but a brother is born for adversity. The title here is Born for Adversity of my message in Genesis 4, 1 through 12, No better picture in Scripture, more dramatically, I think, portrays this concept, this idea of the brokenness of family relationships so evident as that of the relationship between Cain and Abel, truly brothers born for adversity, as it were. The aim of this morning's message is the following, in beholding the wretchedness of sin, that we might be moved to treasure and to champion our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In beholding the wretchedness of sin, realizing the depth of the depravity of our own souls should consequently cause us to treasure more, value more the work of Jesus Christ to save us and to proclaim that great news with all the more motivation to do so to a world that is lost in their transgressions and sins. Would you stand with me again out of reverence for the reading of God's word as you are able with your Bible open to Genesis 4? And listen as the Word of God is proclaimed in our hearing today. Again, this is Genesis 4, 
1 through 12. Here is God's holy word. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother, Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had great regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desirous for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to his brother Abel in verse 8. And when, uh, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Genesis chapter 4 verse 1 opens with a hopeful declaration from Eve. Notice this quote. After she conceives and bears her presumably firstborn son Cain, she says, quote, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now this reminds us of the promise that came through the declaration of judgment upon the serpent in Genesis 3.15. Do you remember? We've read this many times, but it bears repeating. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There is in this verse the promise of the gospel. There is the promise that through the seed of the woman, a deliverer would come and would crush the serpent's head, would guard the presence of the Lord from the enemies without, would destroy the serpent the way Adam was supposed to have done and had failed, and would set on a course correction the process of fallenness, reverse the curse as it were. He, this one who who was to come, would be the seed of the woman. He would bruise the serpent's head. The serpent would bruise his heel. Later, seemingly again, as testimony of faith in this promise, Adam names his wife, chapter 3.20. He calls his wife's name Eve. Why? Because she was the mother of all living. Adam and Eve seem to recognize right away that in spite of their great tragic Commitment, transgression of God's law, their horrible sin, there is yet hope on the horizon. And so it's only natural that Eve would say, after she bears a son, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. You can almost hear in this phrase, maybe this will be the deliverer. Maybe this, my firstborn son, will be the head crusher. Maybe he will reverse the curse. Maybe he will make a way through the cherub and the the flaming sword back to the 
unadulterated presence of the Lord, the place of fellowship and communion and the holiness of God. Well, it's hard to imagine a set of parents being more discouraged as the narrative continues to unfold, because this proves certainly not to be the case. In short order, this this hopeful statement is short-lived because uh, Cain himself disqualifies himself from being perhaps the seed to come who would reverse the curse, and he does so with the murder of his own brother. In this one act, Cain not only shows himself to be a horrific sinner, depraved of heart, hardened in his soul, a rebel against God, and as depraved uh, as the world has known thus far in this, and at least in his actions, but he has also killed his brother, the second potential opportunity for a deliverer to come. He disqualifies himself with the murder of his brother, and in this one act, act, he renders Eve's words hollow. Neither he nor Abel will be the promised seed. Instead, these early events in the history and the biography of Earth's first family, they further demonstrate the reach and horror of sin, as it has obviously affected not only Adam and Eve, but now their extended family. The curse has now gone a second generation to their children. As we stated in the introduction, Proverbs 17, 17 reminds us, that in a fallen world, relationships that ought to be the closest and most loyal are often, are more often than not, plagued with violent hostility. A friend loves at all times, the author speaks in the book of Proverbs. A brother, however, is born for adversity. As the next generation in, uh, in Genesis testifies, sin does not dilute itself with the birth of a new, uh, of a new generation or the, the, the next of kin, but left to its own devices instead, sin often manifests itself with greater intensity. To this day, the latest generation of human beings on planet Earth of mankind are proving the sinful horror of the human condition even now. Unless and until we corrupt in our transgressions and sins, having received the spiritual blood poisoning from Adam, born in this state, in this fallen state, unless and until we experience the redeeming power of Jesus Christ alone, this manifest depravity will continue to evidence itself generation after generation. Now, in the meantime, back in Genesis 4, we see the conflict between the seed of the serpent, Cain, and the seed of the woman as if you will, Abel taking center stage. That is to say, the Lord's words are coming true, but they are the words of hostility and animosity that the Lord places in judgment uh, within the seed of the woman as as she continues and Adam continues to have children. And so the record of the fallout of the fall continues. I have a heading for you. Don't be uh, too concerned, although... What we've uh, said thus far of our text today is extremely discouraging at first read. There is hope, however, in these texts, and we will go to different pages of Scripture through the course of this message, and we will see how this uh, great wretchedness of sin proves to be a story of overcoming triumph in Jesus Christ our Lord. So hang in there with me. Here's a heading for you. 
There are occasions, three occasions, we have organized the text anyway, for confirming the fallen condition. Three occasions confirming the fallen condition from the first pages of the history of man. In our text today, they are as follows. First of all, worship. The ritual of worship as we see this offering being brought by Cain and an offering being brought by Abel. The occasion of this worship ritual provides an opportunity to see something more of the fallen condition of man. Secondly, divine revelation. The Word of God comes specifically, directly, personally to Cain himself. And as the Word of God is delivered to Cain and it specifically... Uh, His response to it, we see again the fallen condition of man confirmed. And thirdly, there's judicial reckoning. The Lord pronounces consequences on Cain specifically for his sin. So under these three headings, or these three main points, let us look closely, more closely at our text today. First, ritual worship. We see this in Genesis 4, 1 through 5. Reading again. Verse 1, Genesis 4, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. And pay close attention to the next three verses. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. So here we have one offering and one individual making this act of worship, namely Cain and that which he had grown by putting his hand to the plow, if you will. Verse 4, second, and Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And so here we have a second example of an offering, this one another individual and a different type or different kind of offering we find contextually here. Abel brings the firstborn and the fat portions of his flock. So in this ceremonial uh, act of worship, we have two sacrifices and two individuals bringing them. And then we have the result. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering in 4b. And then in verse 5, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. So what do we see confirmed of the fallen condition in this account that we've just read? First of all, we find that although man has entered and the world into this fallen condition, worship is still going on. This is testimony in part to the fact that man is, in spite of the fall, still a worshiping creature. Now, a guy uh, who's I I, uh, value a lot of his instruction, insightful dude, uh, Douglas Wilson, you may be familiar with him insightful and clever guy, and uh, he is fond of saying, it's not a question of uh, whether, it's a question of which. And what does he mean when he says this? Well, he's saying, um, like with respect, with respect to this concept right here, it's not a question of whether man is a worshiper or not, it's a question of which God does he worship. Or you could say more specifically, it's not a question of whether man will bring an offering to appease his God, but it's a question of which offering he will bring. It's not a question of whether man is religious or whether he is not. It's a matter of which kind of spirituality he will pursue. And this is indeed the case. You see, man is a created being. 
In spite of however many centuries, however many millennia, man tries to reconstruct reality in an image that he would prefer in spite of all of the philosophies and the vain, uh, in, in the vain thinking and vain concepts that man endorses. There is one inescapable reality that he cannot run from, and that is the fact that he is created. He is not God. He ha- is not ase, that is, complete and self-dependent in and of himself. He is contingent. That means he's dependent on, him, uh, on something outside of himself. He's dependent on God's provision, God's providence through his creation, sustaining him. As we read in the prophets, specifically Isaiah comes to mind, even the next breath in his lungs, it doesn't matter if you're king or pauper, you are dependent on the Lord for everything. Why? Because you are a created being. And just because man fell doesn't mean he wasn't created anymore. He might try to act like he's his own God now, but no, man is a worshiping creature. He is dependent. It's not a matter of whether, it's a matter of which. And so we see this worship impulse remains in man's heart. But we see two different kinds of worship being offered. Man was made contingent, he was made wired to worship, but now it requires discernment to see whether man's spirituality what uh, gods he seeks to appease, what he seeks to offer the Lord, whether or not that is acceptable. One of the first lessons that we see right in Genesis 4 as the unfolding of man's history continues. So worship is a universal reality of mankind. We will never reach a post-religious state. People uh, in the secular time think that religion is something of the past and man now uh, has Uh, separated himself from those old and ancient ideas. Nothing could be further from the truth. We just worship different gods now. It could be ourselves, could be the state, could be some uh, promise of technology of the future, some government, the next administration, those magistrates over us, those are common ones today. Or it could be just a reversion to plain old paganism. That's common today as well, just as it was in Genesis 4. So we see the first kind of offering that is brought. Under this ritual worship, we see Cain's offering being one of, I would submit, paganism. Cain is a worker of the ground, we see in verse 2. And in verse 3, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Now, there were offerings that the Lord sanctioned later, we read in the law, of produce, grain offering, thank offerings come to mind. These were uh, things, you know, this was... Um, harvest, reap from the field that was to be brought to the Lord as an act of worship. That was fine. That was sanctioned. But there was something particularly wrong, evil, wicked, sinful about Cain's offering. And we find in the context clues that help us figure this out. One of those clues goes back to Genesis 3. Turn back a page to Genesis 3, verse 7. Shortly after Adam and Eve had sinned, It says, verse 7, then their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. And so what did they do? They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. We mentioned that this could have been the first pagan religion or the first act of pagan religion. Why? Because man in his own efforts seeks to better himself or cover his sin through the creation, through things that are made. Those scriptures will go on to testify in Romans chapter 1 that man in his wickedness exchanges the glory of God for that which is created, creatures, lower things. If man tries 
at any time in history to better himself and cover his sin through his own efforts. He is seeking salvation by a different God, by a different Savior, by a different way. So when Adam and Eve sought to cover their sin by fig leaves, it was a demonstration of failure on their part to better their condition. We find this to be further emphasized in the fact that the Lord made them suitable clothing in verse 21, Genesis 3. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now we remark that this covering for their sinful condition, shameful condition, we required a sacrifice, the shedding of blood. An animal, a, substitute, a picture of a substitute sacrifice had to die in order to supply them a covering in this picture of their shamefulness, of their indignity, of their sinful condition. In a similar way, we see this pattern playing out in these two sacrifices. One is a fig leaf kind of offering. It's the produce of the ground that is offered by Cain. Ah, this will be a sufficient offering. Then he's upset when it is not accepted. However, Abel brings a different sort of offering altogether. This was an offering that required the shedding of blood. Perhaps another picture towards the future substitute sacrifice wherein the point would be made and the author of Hebrews would emphasize without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. God is just and sins against His holiness must be paid for by a sacrifice that is proportional to the crime. And so Jesus died in our place. Ultimately, it is the blood shed from our Savior, Jesus Christ, that gives us the clean, white, holy robes of righteousness. And all the way back in Genesis 4, there was an offering that pictured this kind of atonement. And there was an offering that pictured a fig leaf of my own efforts and my own resources attempt to make a shortcut around God's only way of salvation. One was paganism, one was true worship. Blood sacrifice and atonement are necessary. Turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews 11, an important cross-reference. There's an additional reason, and this perhaps um, you could say is a primary reason why Cain's sacrifice was not accepted. We talked about the pictures of the differences and the distinctions and contrasts between clothing of our own design, clothing God supplies, Again, offerings of the fruit of our own labors versus offerings for the sacrifice that represent the sacrifice of another. But in addition to this, the author of Hebrews says the following, Hebrews 11:4, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Ultimately, the author of Hebrews tells us that when Abel brought his offering before the Lord, he did so as a true act of worship in faith of the promised Messiah to come. Abel believed that the seed of his mother would provide for him a Savior one day. And so he offered his sacrifice to the Lord, his offering to the Lord, his act of worship to the Lord in faith that this was the substance of his hope. Cain's offering did no such thing. And this is proven in the course of these events because when the Word of God comes to correct Cain, does he submit to the Word of God? 
Or does he stomp his feet down, as it were, throw a temper tantrum like a petulant three-year-old, spiritually speaking? Is he obstinate and rebellious and refusing to listen to his Creator and to his Lord? Yes, that is the case. True worship offers the firstborn and it offers the best. Would you turn with me again to, uh, in your Scriptures to a different place? Let's go to Exodus 13. Some of these pictures in shadow form become more clear in ceremonial form in the law and even more clear still in the work of Christ in the New Testament. It's important to see these threads through Scripture. One of these threads, by way of sacrifice, is apparent as we turn to the law in Exodus 13. Notice Exodus 13, verse 2. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel both of man and of beast, is mine. The Lord, again, He is Creator and He is Lord. And so, as a demonstration of worship, that He is our all in all, the commandment here at this time was to offer the first fruits of your produce and uh, even dedication of your family as an offering to the Lord, recognizing that He is your Lord. Abel did this, Cain did not. We continue in Exodus 13, verse 12. You shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with the lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, By a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. And when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborns of my son I redeem. It shall be a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. So you see... The Lord, he showed, the Lord revealed to the people at this time a way for them to recognize His salvation and His lordship over them. To remember that nothing that they have is by virtue of their own efforts or work, but their salvation and their provision comes from the Lord. And a way to demonstrate this faith was to offer the firstborn of flocks and redeem the firstborn of sons to the Lord recognizing that he could justly kill the firstborn as he did in judgment, yet through the blood of a sacrificial lamb, the Paschal lamb, the Passover lamb, God saved the firstborn of the sons of Egypt. And this message, this picture goes all the way back to Cain and to Abel. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. On your own time, you could go to Leviticus 3, 14 through 17 and see that fat portions were the choicest cuts. It, were the, it was the portions that were um, to be brought and, uh, to the Lord as a sacrifice. That is to say, in summary, that the first and the best were to be offered to the Lord in worship. And these were a faith testimony that He is our Savior, our Lord, our provider, creator, and God. And so the occasion of the one sacrifice uh, contrasted to the other, Cain versus Abel, this worship that's going on here, offers us that opportunity to see the fallen condition and by contrast 
to see uh, the way of salvation. Let us move to point number two. A second occasion confirming the fallen condition. We've seen this worship take, uh, show us as much. Next, we see divine revelation or the Word of God. The fact that God is speaking. Now, uh, young people, you've been studying general revelation versus special revelation. Let me read to you this verse and you tell me which this is. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Is this general revelation or special revelation? That's right. It's special revelation because God is speaking. This is the Word of God. General revelation, just to remind you, is God speaking through His creation, the things that are made. But special revelation is God speaking to us through His recorded Word. And in the case of Cain, in his very hearing, the direct, unmediated voice of the Lord revealing to him His law, His Word, His way, His will. The Lord's Word is coming directly to this sinner, calling him to repentance. Now, this occasion, you can see, reveals the fallen condition, does it not? No, we uh, pray for missionaries, that God would give them the words, that the Holy Spirit would be pleased to use the foolishness of preaching that mere humans might go forth, you and I, and the testimony of our, our own experience, going forth, bring the, uh, the lost, the gospel, and we trust the Holy Spirit to cover for our you know, mistakes in that area or what, and whatnot, that we might have the privilege of seeing His word go forth and to the testimony of God's glory, grace, and the use of His Holy, and His Holy Spirit using these means, many do come to the faith through this means. But there was a preacher who, who would never fail, Jesus Christ, and at this time, the Lord Himself, His every word is absolute truth. And if you do not bow before the Lord speaking to you in this voice directly to you, does it not show you the hardness of man's heart? This divine revelation, the Word of God coming direct to Cain himself, is a stark reality of the fallenness of the human heart. Think of it this way, saint. If you trust and believe Jesus Christ, if you believe that this is the Holy Word of God, consider the miracle that God has done in your own heart. There are people who heard the very audible voice of God in the past and did not repent. Are you, do you treasure your own salvation now more in light of this fact? Do you, are, you, are you moved to champion the glories of Christ and the power of His Holy Spirit changing your heart? You could have easily been Cain, but God changed your heart. God gave you a soft heart. He took out the heart of clay and gave you a heart of flesh. This did not happen for Cain, although he heard the direct voice of the Lord. More than this, the voice of the Lord was four things at least, or three things as I wrote them down in my notes. It was instructive, it was personal, and it was gracious. First of all, instructive. The Lord revealed uh, Cain's sin to him, illuminated the situation, brought perspective on his uh, actions, his heart, his actions that were shortly to come, his heart as it was reflected in his anger because the Lord rejected his sacrifice. And if Cain loved the law of the Lord, he would recognize that God's word in this way delivered to him by special revelation was a lamp unto his feet and a light unto his path. But what did Cain do? 
He left his eyes covered by his own sinful rebellion and said, I will not see, I will not follow, I will not listen. And his next act is to slay, to kill, to murder his brother. The Lord says to him, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? Important questions. The answer to those rhetorical questions is significant. He has no good reason to be angry because it is the Lord, the sovereign, his creator, his Lord, who has rejected this sacrifice. So the real real, uh, response or the The logical response to such a scenario is, Lord, why is my sacrifice not accepted? Please show me the error of my ways that I might repent and walk in the light of your truth. The Lord was showing him the way. He says, if you do well, sin is crouching at the door, its desires for you, but you must rule over it. The Lord, by the power of his word, is revealing Cain's sin to him and saying, uh, this is deceiving you, swallowing you up. It's uh, becoming your, your, it's your sl- uh, master, your, its slave. You must repent. And the correct response would have been for Cain to ask the Lord, how can I rule over it? Will you change my heart? Let me walk in your way. I repent. I am sorry. But no such repentance was forthcoming. Nevertheless, God's word was instructive. More than this, God's word was personal. The Lord said to Cain, God himself, the creator of the universe, the one who set the cosmos in motion, the one who demonstrates his creative glory as far as the technological eyes of the Hubble telescope can see into the distant reaches of the universe, spoke with specificity, individually, personally to Cain himself. He says, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? A personal God, the creator of heaven and earth, triune in his nature and character, condescends, that is, he stoops low. He makes his voice knowable, hearable, discernible to his creature and lovingly extends to him this message in this personal way, engaging Cain in the context of his very human struggle. Yet, again, the fallenness of in the horror of sin, the depravity of mankind as it's represented by Cain is even more stark because he remained incorrigible. He did not listen to this personal and instructive voice of the Lord. Finally, this voice was gracious. It pleaded with Cain, the Lord did so, extending to him the opportunity of repentance. Now, uh, some have erred uh, in their, in their uh, religious philosophies in the past. And one error uh, that man has made that uh, church, some churches have stumbled into who hold to some form of Reformed theology has been identified as hyper-Calvinism. What is hyper-Calvinism? Hyper-Calvinism is the conclusion that since it is God who sovereignly brings someone to salvation, there is no point in giving the opportunity or, the, or extending the invitation to repent and to believe. Now, this is an error indeed. It's borderline heresy, uh, if not worse. But this is repudiated. This is refuted right in our text. The Lord, knowing full well the hardness of Cain's heart, nevertheless extends to him opportunity to repent. And so we should do the same. 
In other words, when we preach the gospel, it may be discouraging because nine times out of 10, if not 99 out of 100, the message of repentant belief falls on deaf ears and hard hearts and only gets us mockery and derision. And people don't just cry, what must I do to be saved all the time? Those occasions are few and far between. However, the Lord demonstrates in his own action, sovereign action here, that his gospel is to be proclaimed to the hard heart and to the soft heart, and he will, at his time and choosing, soften hearts to believe. And you don't know in the future if those words that you declare to someone who is obstinate now might not be a seed planted, the Holy Spirit fertilizes and waters later, that blooms into new life and repentance. So let us take a lesson from this. The Word of God is always worth proclaiming. It is powerful. It is the primary means whereby God sparks faith in the human heart. And even in this case, though sometimes the heart is hardened against it, it is still worth proclaiming. Cain disregarded the Lord's Word. Cain failed to acknowledge in his offering, his irreverent offering, God the Lord as his Creator, as his as his Savior, the one who could grant unto him the opportunity and means of repentance. And so now Cain asserts himself as sovereign over life. Instead of recognizing that God was king over his life, he takes his brother's life into his own hands. Do you see this self-idolatry, this wickedness? Cain believed the lie of the serpent. You can be as God. That is to say, in this application, you can take whatever life you want at will. Brothers and sisters, today, this lie is alive and well. I mentioned abortion as an application last week. Sometimes I think I want to preach against this heinous act of self-exaltation every week until it is stamped out from the consciousness of our nation and society. Why? Because it is one of the most egregious offenses against the Lord and presumes to take the power over life and death into our own sinful hands. And just like Cain, we commit murder, infanticide, just like Cain committed fratricide when we follow our own will over life and not submit to our Lord who alone holds the power of life and death in his hands. And only the rebel, the self-exalting person who believes the lie of Satan presumes to do otherwise. So Cain asserts himself as sovereign over life in the murder of his brother. Cain models a certain progression of soul and action. Notice, he first of all marshals, he summons his own efforts and resources in this irreverent act of worship, offering uh, making this offering to the Lord. When this is not accepted, uh, when his way is not, uh, is not pleasing to the Lord, he, he reacts in anger. He reacts in anger when his offering is not accepted. He refuses to heed the word of God spoken mercifully and directly to him. And then he takes out his anger on his fellow image bearer, his own brother. And he remains unrepentant as a record continues, even upon the pronouncement of judgment for his sin. He defies the discipline and instruction of the Lord, and he presumes upon the Lord's long-suffering. When the Word of God goes forth, it is a powerful indictment for those who do not repent. 
The preaching of the gospel is serious business because the ears that remain incorrigible, unrepentant to the proclamation of repent and believe now stand accountable for their sin in a unique way now. And this was the case in Canaan, so it is now. So in keeping with the aim of this message, in beholding the wretchedness of sin, may we be moved to treasure to guard the gospel, to appreciate it, and to champion our Lord Jesus Christ all the more because the stakes could not be higher. Final point this morning. Third occasion confirming the fallen condition of man. This worship event, divine revelation, the Word of God coming, and thirdly, judicial reckoning. Verses 9 through 12. As the Lord had pronounced judgment already on the serpent, who else, young people, did God pronounce judgment on in Genesis 3? Do you remember? There was three individuals. There was a serpent and then who? They're, um, not, not in Genesis 3. First of all, it was the serpent and then God pronounced judgment on, remember? Eve. And then the third, the third person that God pronounced judgment on? Adam. That's correct. And now the fourth is Cain. And we see this record in verse 10. And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You should be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth. This is a pronouncement of judgment. This is a judicial reckoning. This is the day of the Lord, if you will, for Cain. That is to say, it's a summons it's a subpoena, it's a charge, it's a, to appear before the authority to stand and account for your actions, answer for the crimes against you in law language and legal language. This is a judicial reckoning. Now, of course, there's no defense and no excuse that Cain can muster at this time, and it's as if he doesn't even try. You know, at least Adam and Eve felt the weight of God's judgment against them and tried to summon some excuse, as pitiful as it was, you know, uh, the woman that you gave me, Adam said, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord turned to the woman. What was her excuse? Kids, do you remember? Eve said, I sinned because the serpent deceived me. Excellent. She said, uh, the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? She said, the woman, the serpent deceived me and I ate. That's how they answered the Lord's, uh, the Lord's inquiry. No, that answer was preceded by questions. Do you remember? The, as after Adam and Eve has sinned, the Lord comes, and we've talked about this coming. It's not uh, likely the you know walking in the cool of the day, the gentle footsteps of that we think of when we think of that uh, a song. I walk through the garden alone with the dew is still on the roses. Instead, this is the day of the Lord for Adam and Eve. There's an ominous doom. This is the fire and power and glory and authority of the Lord revealed specifically in response to their sins and crimes against Him. And it caused them to shudder and quake and fear and hide because they were naked, exposed, vulnerable to the charges that would come against them. So when the Lord asked these questions, they're not questions to give Him information. The Lord knows exactly what's going on. There are questions that are designed to prompt them to give an account, a reckoning for their sin. The Lord asks Adam and Eve, where are you? He says, who told you that you were naked? He says, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? 
These questions are designed to bring them to account before their sin, for their sin. Brothers and sisters, there is coming a day where the ultimate day of the Lord will arrive for everyone who's ever lived. There are those who are fat, dumb, and happy, rich, pampered, and think they are winning at life. There are those who Psalm 73 describes as fat and sleek and are able to partake in what seems to be an, un, you know, a bottomless well of life's greatest pleasures with little or no consequence or accountability. But that, there is no such thing. There is coming a day at the final judgment where everyone must answer for their transgressions against the Lord. What will you plead when you hear a question like this? Where is Abel your brother? As you stand before the great white throne. Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Those questions ring with ominous doom, with judgmental fury for those who have not had their sins covered by the blood of Jesus. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, when you stand before the throne, you'll be separated from the goats into the sheep pen as it were. Why? Because one died in your place. The judgment that your sin deserved was taken by a substitute sacrifice. The sacrifice that Abel's reverent offering pictured, Jesus died for you. And so the only answer to that question that doesn't earn you hell is Jesus died for that sin of mine. And so Cain is asked this question, where is Abel, your brother? As if to say, is there any good reason why his blood cries to me from the ground? <clears throat> Cain, as obstinate, as hard-hearted, and as incredulous as ever, says, <coughs> I do not know, am I my brother's keeper? A children, good answer or a bad answer? Was Cain telling the truth? No, he was not telling the truth. He had killed his brother. Am I my brother's keeper? He says, in effect, am I supposed to be responsible for him? Almost thumbing his nose rebelliously at God. If you're so strong, if you, uh, if you, uh, you know, maybe it's your fault that he died. Why should I be my brother's keeper? Why didn't you keep him? Who knows exactly how uh, wicked these responses were, suffice it to say that this is a rebellion of Cain coming right to the fore in the most presumptuous answers that you can possibly imagine with the God of the universe holds you account for your own sins. This is the day of the Lord, and Cain does not fare well before this judicial hearing. The scales of justice now weigh heavy against him. And we see this in verse 10. The Lord says, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Will, this, will the voice of Abel's blood ever go silent? Will that cry for justice from the ground, will it ever go away? Will the Lord forget? Will it fade from his memory? The testimony of Scripture tells us absolutely not. It will not. The cries for justice from the blood of the innocents that bleeds forth, that cries forth from the ground, shout even this day. And if our spiritual ears were open to hear them, I don't know that we would even survive the sound of their cry. So stark and deafening and so disturbing it would be to our ears. Surely the weight of justice that is earned for those who have transgressed God's law so the heaviness is too much for any of us to bear. In Matthew 23, 33, 
Jesus is pronouncing judgment. He says to the Pharisees, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? You notice these sinners, he associates them with the with the uh, enemy from the very beginning, the devil himself, the serpent. He says, Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in the synagogues and persecute from town to town. Do you notice? These were the agents of the word of God. In the same way that the word of God came to Cain and he disregarded it, so in Jesus' day, the Pharisees, when the word of God came to them and their spiritual heritage, they disregarded it. They killed the prophets, just like Cain killed his brother Abel, who had favor with God. If he had asked Abel to teach him the way of salvation, Abel could have brought the gospel to his brother in so many words, in so many pictures, although in only, you know, although, albeit in seed form. But the indictment continues, just like over Cain, now over the Pharisees. Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. This is Matthew 23, 35. So that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. The blood of Abel still cries out in Jesus' day, or judgment. And he said, those who align themselves with Abel's murderer came in the same heart, rejecting the word of the Lord and killing its messenger and setting themselves in enmity against the seed of the woman, as it were, they will receive the wrath of God in undiluted measure. Turn to Revelation. As we begin to bring this message to a close, it's important to see the judgment worthy of our sin, to understand the depth of its wretchedness. Revelation 6. This message continues, verses 9 through 11. After this I looked, John speaking in his dream. This is the special revelation of the Lord again as he receives this, uh, as he receives this picture and this vision from the sovereign Lord. After this, behold, I looked a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing, honor, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor and power and might. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So we continue to read this account. We see that one of the elders addressed me saying, verse 13, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. There are other passages that speaks more specifically of this, uh, uh, of the kind of revelation or the kind of tribulation that is spoken of here. And once the number of those who are martyred and crucified for the Lord's name are complete, 
then the Lord's judgment will come and there will be a satisfactory end to this phase in history. Uh, and, and you can uh, study more of that on your own time. Suffice it to say that this judicial reckoning is something that is serious and weighty and illustrates the wretchedness of our sin, especially in proportion to the judgment it deserves. There is a curse pronounced on Cain. It says he is doomed to discontent in so many words, and in fear he will be driven and he will, uh, out and he will be a wanderer. In Genesis 4, Final words in our passage today, when you work the ground, the Lord says to him, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You should be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth. Now Cain, again, is not satisfied with this. Since he was angry about his offering not being accepted, he begins to complain now. He begins to whine about these consequences. My punishment is greater than I can bear, which in his protestations don't carry much weight, do they, given his great transgression. Now, what does this curse mean? Well, similar to the curse pronounced on Adam, that which once symbolized provision and help for mankind, the providence of God, the earth yielding its increase, will now prove an enemy to him. Uh, Cain's very material existence will prove his enemy, and he is condemned to be a wanderer. Let me submit this to you. One might say, well, it seems that Cain, he went on to He goes on to build a city. We'll cover that more next time in perhaps defiance of this judgment against him. Perhaps he seemed to achieve a kind of relative state of stability and security in spite of this proclamation of judgment against him. What say you about this? I submit to you that this sense of uh, condemnation, that this uh, proclamation of judgment against Cain as one primarily of heart and soul, um, in other words, It doesn't matter how rich he became. It doesn't matter how strong his city walls were. It didn't matter if he lived in an impregnable mansion. It didn't matter if he could summon armies to defeat his foes. He would never escape the torturous thought that when I die, I will go to hell. He would never escape the torturous thought that although I have all these riches, it is never enough. This week, uh, someone sent me a, a link to a video as a tour of a hundred and something, something million dollar mansion in Beverly Hills or something out on the West Coast where the elites and the richest of the rich in all the world dwell. This mansion was for sale. They're giving you a tour of its various rooms. It's just bigger than any hotel probably that I've ever been in. And every time you turn a corner, something that you've never seen before pops out at you. And then they came to some interesting artwork. There were uh, these gold syringes on the wall and they were tapped into um, like designer icons, like a a syringe into Louis Vuitton and a syringe into something else and some other designer. And nonchalantly, the tour guide is saying, if you're addicted to these things of the world, you know, why not celebrate them in your castle? This is the only one of this uh, that exists in all the earth. Let me tell you what, if you know anybody that's rich or famous, if you've come into any close contact on a personal level with people who seek hope, help, salvation, affluence, and security in mere material things, it does not matter. If you own a 180-something, a million-dollar mansion, you will not achieve help, hope, security, peace. America is the most affluent society in the history of mankind, they tell us. And I heard this week that the primary cause of death for 
for people under 35 who have the world by the tail and, you know, the future of technology promising them this glorious road in front of them. The number one cause of death is suicide, and one out of four people are on antidepressant medication because they can't handle the judgment of God that accompanies all who seek hope, help, assurance, salvation, and security in their material existence. What is riches if you are in poverty of soul? What is a castle if you fear for your own life? What is a paycheck beyond uh, what anyone else in history could boast if you are anxious and stressed out and have no assurance and security that next moment you might die, your life might be required of you, and you will stand before the reckoning judgment of God? And where, what will you answer? This is the message to Cain, and it's a message that rings true no matter how rich or affluent we might be in our society today. There are no shortcuts for salvation. Would you turn with me to one final verse this morning? The theme of Abel's blood is picked up yet one more time in the book of Hebrews. This is Hebrews chapter 12. I'd like to close on this verse. Hebrews chapter 12. Herein is the hope of salvation as well. Let's begin in 22 through 24. <clears throat> now in contrast, I should back up a little with, for context. In contrast to what cannot be touched, blazing fire, darkness, gloom, tempest, basically the conditions and environment that picture judgment worthy on all who stand uncovered in their sin before the holiness of God and tremble with fear at the sight of Him, there are those who enjoy a different future altogether. And this is spoken of in Hebrews 12, 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Reference to safety, security, the place of God's dwelling with man, glorious place. The gates of Eden are open once again, if you will. Now we are in festal gathering with the angels rather than the cherub with flaming sword guarding uh, the presence of God from us as enemies. No, something has changed now. We are assembled among the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, notice verse 23, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. The author is saying that we can assemble one day in festal gathering, in joyful communion before the judge of all. How is that possible given our sin? The answer comes in verse 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is how. Because of the blood of Jesus Christ, a phrase that occurred to me during our Hebrew study last time we were in this passage is this. The blood of Abel cries out for justice. And that cry yet echoes from the ground even today as we see in Revelation, Matthew 23 and so forth. The blood of Abel cries out for justice. Yet the blood of Jesus cries out justified. The blood of Jesus cries out justified. That is, you are made righteous and holy. And you can join with the angels in festal gathering, with the gates of Eden, as it were, and more, opened up to you, so you can have sweet communion with the cherubim who once guarded the presence of God with flaming sword against your intrusion as an enemy, now a friend, an adopted son and daughter of the Lord through the work 
of Jesus Christ, described as our brother in the same book, this is all possible because the blood of Jesus justifies us, washes us from our sins. In summary, the gospel contrast is stark between Cain and Christ. In Genesis, a man takes the life of his own brother out of selfish spite, resentment, anger, jealousy, malice, and envy because his sacrifice was not acceptable, thus signaling rejection of the covenant and illustrating the brokenness of our world. This is the story of Cain. Yet in redemption, hope is awaiting the child of God who comes to faith in Jesus Christ and that child to come at the time in Genesis 4 who would lay down his life, the firstborn, as it were, of God himself, who would lay down his life as the only acceptable sacrifice, substitute sacrifice, and as such would have the, would, uh, would have the power, exercise the power to adopt his enemies as his brothers and indeed incorporate them into the family of God as sons and daughters of the Almighty. The first was the story of Cain. The second is the story of Christ. The first is the story of the seed of the serpent. The second is the story of the seed of the woman. Here is the head-crushing power of Jesus Christ, our Lord, speaking a better word than even the blood of Abel. In Him and Him alone, you saint, are justified. Let us close in prayer. Oh Lord, we thank you for the power of your holy word that preaches to us this, the truth that corrects our uh, depraved understanding, our wayward thinking. Lord Jesus, the flesh that still clings to us, the deception that would seek to overtake us. We thank you for the, crea- the corrective power of the Holy Spirit with that two-edged sword that does a surgical work in our soul, returning us to the hope and stay of each blood-bought saint in Christ alone. I pray that you would give us grace to manifest your truth, to draw clear lines, to proclaim the gospel to a world lost, dead, and dying, and that we would do so with increased boldness, appreciating what you have done for us. And finally, if there are any in the hearing of this message who have not bowed before Jesus Christ their Savior, but are trusting in their own fig leaf and produce resources and offerings to somehow compensate for them, I pray that they would repent of their irreverent offering and that they would place their faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, who alone has the power to justify them, render them righteous in the sight of God, the judge of all. Lord, may you, through the proclamation of your word, populate that festal gathering with so many we can't even count from every tribe, tongue, and nation who will join at Mount Zion one day, praising your holy name because of the work of Christ, our Savior and Lord. In his name we pray, amen.